The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. Now, from our nation's capital, this is Bloomberg Sound On. Our path now has to be clean energy that we can own, that we can deliver. We are mandating uh, vaccines uh, for individuals whom we encounter at the southern border. Bloomberg Sound On. Politics, policy and perspective. From D.C.'s top names. He's been caught in a ball-faced lie and he can't spin his way out of it. No one's going to buy it. This is an absolutely humanitarian disaster. Americans deserve better, but they're not going to get it. Bloomberg Sound On with Joe Matthew on Bloomberg Radio. The global fuel shock hits the East Coast. Welcome to the fastest hour in politics as we join you from the mothership world headquarters in New York and news that gasoline supplies have fallen to an eight-year low on the East Coast, diesel to the lowest since 1996. We're going to talk about what that means for the summer driving season and what, if anything, Washington can do to help with Patrick DeHaan, the head of petroleum analysis at Gas Buddy. He'll be here in a moment. Later, the Secretary of Homeland Defense grilled on Capitol Hill over the border. We'll talk about the administration's plans to replace Title 42 with Leon Fresco, specialized in immigration litigation at the Department of Justice and saw this coming. Kevin McCarthy meets with the rank and file for the first time since the tape was leaked. We'll discuss that with the panel today. Bloomberg Politics contributor, Democratic analyst Jeannie Shanzano, along with Republican strategist Doug High, former comms director at the RNC. The headline says it all. Global fuel supply shock hits U.S. East Coast inventories hard. And you thought gas prices were falling. Well, I mean, they have been. I'm paying less than $4 in the nation's capital, at least lately. It was up around 5 at one point. But the inventory reports are out, and they do not provide comfort. As I read on the terminal, East Coast distillates, diesel and heating oil, have fallen to their lowest level since 1996, and gasoline to the lowest level in eight years. In New England, specifically, gas stockpiles at their lowest level since CNC Music Factory was singing Gonna Make You Sweat. That would be 1991. Would you guys have gotten that? I know Paul would have. Now, of course, gas prices have been rising throughout the year way before the war in Ukraine. Of course, that made it a lot worse. Though the messaging from the White House has really been all about the war lately. We've discussed this, right? The Putin price hike. This is President Biden using that line earlier in the week. The second big reason for inflation is gas prices. And it's Vladimir Putin's gas price increase. Putin's invasion of Ukraine has driven up gas prices and food prices all around the world. Putin price hike, the gas Putin price increase, whatever you want to call it, it echoes throughout the administration. Of course, critics say, well, these prices have more to do with America's dependence on foreign oil, with energy policy. And of course, it's been exaggerated by the war and by a lot. These inventory reports though give us a sense of what we could be in for Memorial Day and beyond. And we bring in Patrick DeHaan for more on this. Been looking forward to the conversation with the head of petroleum analysis at GasBody. Patrick, welcome back. When you consider 
the inventory crunch here, the likelihood that this war continues, and then the summer blends emerging, what does that mean for gas prices this driving season? Well, I mean, certainly a very bumpy and volatile summer uh, as we continue to see markets digest varying headlines that seemingly are on opposite ends of the spectrum. Um, you know, there's a lot been said about Russia and Ukraine and now Russia today escalating the situation by uh, stifling the flow of natural gas to Poland and Bulgaria. Uh, and of course, we have uh, a global uh, economy that's been rebounding. Um, in addition, China on the other side of the spectrum with COVID, uh, which could push oil prices lower uh, because of the, the response and demand there as, as Chinese authorities lock down areas of China. So mm. there's a lot for the market to digest um, coming out of COVID. Um, you know, demand went from uh, uh, from zero to 100 miles an hour very quickly, it mm. seems like. Mm -hmm. um, and as you mentioned, they're lead off the segment. Inventories are extremely tight. Why is the East Coast such a problem? Well, we've lost nearly half a million barrels a day in refining capacity. Um, the come by chance refinery in Canada on uh, the Maritimes was shut down just prior, or uh, I should say uh, in the midst of COVID. Um, and the Philadelphia Energy Solutions refinery in Philadelphia, uh, which had a capacity of over 333,000 barrels a day was uh, suffered a fire back in uh, 2019, if memory serves. So we've, we've lost about half a million barrels of refining capacity in that in that region. Uh, and so things have gotten uh, extremely tight. So we've got a refining crunch here on the East Coast. I won't say locally, I guess regionally we could say it's even worse in New England from what I am reading here uh, in the reporting from Bloomberg News at the supply crunch with the war. And we've got some serious issues here, Patrick. I guess the the, the one, it's interesting how this works, right? The demand from China for years was pushing prices higher. If they lock down even further because of COVID in China, is that the one hope we have, as awful as that sounds? Boy, it does sound awful. I mean, that, that certainly would offer a respite to global demand, uh, is if, if China continues to you know have portions of major sh uh, cities, Shanghai, Beijing, locked down, that would limit their consumption. Yeah. And right now we're, we're virtually helpless on supply between sanctions on Russia and Russia's war in Ukraine and Americans are, that are getting out and about. Um, there's really no way to curb supply. Americans uh, are, are doing so slightly with higher prices, uh, but then politicians offer lower prices through uh, lower gas taxes and, and soften that blow. So I, I think it's gonna be harder to adjust the demand side of the equation. Um, um, it's just as hard to adjust the supply side of the equation, given the fact that, as you mentioned, you know, we we've recovered very quickly from COVID and supply has lagged behind. House Speaker Nancy Pelosi and the majority leader of the Senate, Chuck Schumer, uh, had a meeting yesterday reportedly to talk about assembling a package to get gas prices under control. Uh, they've been in touch with the White House on this. Apparently, Chief of Staff Ron Klain, according to Punchbowl, uh, was part of the conversation. The idea here is to get as much, you know, different approaches cobbled into one that, as we can. There's been talk about a gas tax holiday, even payments and some vouchers to people. Patrick, would any of this stuff make a difference this summer? Uh, I think it's a slippery slope. Obviously, politicians, you know, have been looking for relief. We've seen it come at the state level, Georgia, Connecticut, Maryland, all doing gas tax holidays. Mm. The incredible risk is that that compounds the problem by potentially incentivizing Americans to 
not make behavioral changes, driving changes. I mean, part of the reason we're curious because consumption has gone up, it's outpaced demand, yeah. uh, excuse me, it's outpaced supply. And to make the problem worse, you're going to reduce prices, um, especially if it's in the midst of summer. Americans have uh, much more uh, ability to go out and enjoy the summer months. I mean, if you offer a gas tax holiday in winter, I wouldn't be as worried as Americans going out and saying, hey, let's just take a, a spontaneous road trip. But in the summer, the ingredients are there for them to actually do that. So yeah. the, the risk is politicians lower prices, and that's going to increase demand. Gina McCarthy was talking about this uh, today uh, with uh, a, a conference with Bloomberg Green. They assembled a bunch of folks to talk about climate. And Gina McCarthy, of course, the White House climate czar, is making the point that, you know, we're not having the right conversation. And what you said reminded me of that, Patrick. If we're obsessed with increasing production here and lowering prices, we're never going to get off the stuff. And she says we need to be transitioning to renewable energy. Of course, that's her role in the administration to promote that. Here's what Gina McCarthy said today. His belief is, and he stated it every single time that he's talked about oil and gas prices, is that our only way to have independence, our only way to have security against challenges that dictators like Putin present is to actually grab that clean energy future. That is the only way we're going to make this work. She spoke with Bloomberg's Francine Lacqua. Uh, the timeline here, Patrick, is is really challenging. You know, at, at what point does this finally break and we turn away from incentivizing companies or, or begging companies to drill more and start investing in renewable? Well, I, I think the challenge is one that, uh, you know, the, the administration seems laser focused on moving us away from, from fossil fuels, and that's fine. The problem is that now you're, you're, I mean, this is economics at its finest, supply and demand shifts from fossil fuels mm -hmm. to ingredients that go into EVs. Lithium prices have skyrocketed, nickel, other precious metals are skyrocketing in price. Um, and I, I mean, I won't even go in the background of how, how those minerals are, are mined from the earth, right? A lot of that is, is what you don't see, you see mm -hmm driving around an EV that you can charge and recharge without fossil fuels. But I think everything has pros and cons. I think the problem with moving towards renewables is we're going to have to have a whole lot of renewables. That's for um, sure. You know, wind, solar, nuclear, we're all going to have it. We need it now, right? Because we need to make this transition sooner rather than later. But that compounds the problem by driving prices up. And look at, look right. at Tesla. I mean, they've already made price increases on EVs several times this year for this exact reason. What's the national average uh, right now, Patrick? Uh, we are staring at na uh, a national average in the U.S. now for uh, unloaded gasoline at about 413 a gallon. Okay, 413. We see five this summer. You know, it, it it's unlikely. It's I'll say it this way. It's okay. improbable, uh, but it still could happen, right? It's improbable, not impossible. Um, but, you know, given all of the uncertainty, I mean, COVID is still, you know, uh, making its way across countries, apparently in China the most. And on the other side, we also have the Russia-Ukraine situation, which, I mean, escalations, there's so so much uncertainty. Like you said, the ingredients that... are there to see these things happen. Patrick DeHaan, thank you. Come back and see us again. I always enjoy it. The head of petroleum analysis at Gas Buddy, where you can actually find the, the local average in your neighborhood. I am wondering about New England, though. Like I said, gas stockpiles at their lowest level since 1991. 
When this was the number one song in America, are we really having this conversation right now? It's true. So if you're going up to Martha's Vineyard to Boston to Maine, it's something to keep in mind when you refuel into our friends at our Boston station. We see you. We'll assemble the panel next. This is Bloomberg. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. You're listening to Bloomberg Sound On with Joe Matthew on Bloomberg Radio. Joining you from Bloomberg World Headquarters in New York today with an eye on oil and gas prices. Following the inventory shock we were just talking about with Patrick DeHaan, President Biden calls it the Putin price hike. But will voters buy that the rest of the year? because they were paying a lot before the war started. Let's assemble the panel right now. Jeannie Shanzano is with us, of course, Bloomberg Politics contributor and Democratic analyst, and joined today uh, by Doug Heyes with us, Republican strategist, former deputy chief of staff to Eric Cantor, former communications director for the RNC. It's great to have you both with us here. Jeannie, uh, this is big, big trouble if our conversation with Patrick DeHaan pans out, talking about the possibility of $5 a gallon in the summer driving season, just as people are paying attention to primaries and noticing signs on the lawns and thinking about local races and who they want to vote for, despite every effort this administration has made, uh, these these inventories do not project a good picture. What can Joe Biden do? It's really tough for the Biden administration. As you mentioned, they have tried to make the case that this is a Putin price hike that has fallen flat, you know, in large part because Vladimir Putin is not on the ballot, nor will he be in November. So people don't have an option of blaming Vladimir Putin when they go to vote. They have the option of blaming Democrats, and that's likely what they'll do. So, you know, as we just look at what Russia did with Poland and and Bulgaria the other day, imagine if they do that with Germany and potentially Italy with North stream, things could get worse. I do think there's things that they could try to do, maybe a skinny sort of energy package, Hmm. something that somebody like Joe Manchin could get Republicans, Democrats on board with. But, you know, as we keep talking about, unless something like that probably happens before Memorial Day, it's likely not going to happen. And Democrats are probably going to keep pushing this message to blame Putin, but it's not a winning message. Well, it's also not going to bring prices down a lot in the near term, is it? I mean, you can put together and we need an energy energy policy, you put together an energy bill, great, but this is long term. I mean, affecting prices the next couple of months, Jeannie, is, is close to impossible. It's close to impossible. And of course, again, presidents always get blamed for the good and the bad. And in this case, the bad and the president isn't on the ballot, but Democrats are and they'll get blamed in turn. Doug, I'm glad you're here. Uh, I notice uh, your former colleagues at the RNC are well aware of this and have been tweeting video of (laughs) President Biden talking about the Putin price hike. Does he need to stop saying that now? Yeah, I I think so. The the reality, and this is one of the things the RNC has been highlighting, is that inflation has gone up every month that Joe Biden has been president. So, you know, if we're talking about Putin price hikes that started in, say, you know, February, well, in January, December, November, we were talking about gas prices. We were talking about 
what people were paying at grocery stores, what they were yeah. paying at restaurants, what they're paying for their rental car, used car, new car, Uber. The president car, was holding inflation events months and months ago, months before the wars started. It, exactly. And what we saw was, you know, before this in, invasion happened, when there might be a slight dip in gas prices, Democrats wanted to herald that, you know, gas prices were down 10 cents in two weeks. Well, okay. But a lot of money had already been taken out of the pocketbook of, of you know, Americans throughout the country hmm. and, and more expensive on everything they paid. And that happened well before this. So what do you do from the Republican view here? Sit on your hands, Doug, wait to uh, hopefully take the majority or, or could there be a bipartisan effort to manage this? I mentioned the, the meeting with Pelosi and Schumer. I realized that was not a meeting with McConnell and McCarthy. Uh, but we're talking about doing something, right? A gas tax holiday, maybe it's vouchers, maybe there's something on the production end that can be done to to incentivize drillers. What's your thought? Yeah. Yeah, look, you know, we're seeing a lot of activity from governors already who are providing local gas tax holidays for, you know, 60 days or 90 days. Glenn Youngkin just signed one in this week for 90 days. Hmm. Uh, so that's something where Republicans could get behind. Obviously, you know, they are, they are pro-production, pro-exploration. They'll be happy to talk about, even though it doesn't solve the current crisis, the uh, crisis, the Keystone um, pipeline and things like that. But let's be realistic. We're talking about trying to get something done in the next four weeks on energy. Yeah, that doesn't happen very quickly in Washington, D.C. In, in any circumstance. Well, no, it's, it's highly unlikely as we're talking about new money for Ukraine, Title 42 and COVID, Jeannie, uh, on your menu of options here. What are you doing as the Biden administration uh, to make the priority out of those? You know, they, they have to prioritize Ukraine and they have to prioritize any steps they can take to address inflation. Those are the two things. And that would include, of course, the price of gas. Those are, you know, Ukraine shouldn't be as much of an uphill battle vis-a-vis -vis Congress. Uh, but certainly dealing with inflation, their options are really limited, as are the gas prices. So those those are the two things they have to prioritize. But the real answer is they have to prioritize what can get passed through Congress. And that means when Elizabeth Warren goes out on the Sunday talk shows and talks about, you know, going big or going home, it's <laughs> simply not going to happen. It's got to be what can be done. And I go back to some kind of skinny package that they can get bipartisan agreement on like they did bipartisan infrastructure and mm -hmm. plow it through. Although I agree with Doug, it, it's terribly difficult to imagine four weeks doing something like that. Well, I don't know, Doug, you tell me if from the from the Republican view on Capitol Hill, don't you say, go ahead, make my day. I dare you to spend more money. Well, I mean, certainly they'd be happy to see Democrats try and go big because there's a uh, what we see is is Republicans will be very enthusiastic to show up in November to yeah. block Democratic plans. So the bigger they go, the bigger Republicans could go to the polls in November. I thought you might say that. Black Doug High is with us, along with Jeannie today. They'll be back a bit later as our panel for the Wednesday edition. We turn to immigration next. This is Bloomberg. Thank you for being here and welcome to the fastest hour in politics. I'm Joe Matthew at World Headquarters in New York, reading this story about the Secretary Mayorkas testimony today is quite a read on the terminal. Bloomberg government says Mayorkas is at the center of a political and legal firestorm over the administration's plans to end pandemic-related restrictions at the border. We've talked about this the last two days, Title 42. During a House Homeland Security Committee hearing later Wednesday, Republican members called him a liar, a disappointment, and a failure, and urged him to resign. 
So, how was your day today? Mayorkas, of course, uh, rebounding or trying to from this Title 42 situation. Remember, we had the judge weigh in the other day. It actually happened during the broadcast. Said, no, you can't take that down. This is the COVID policy that we were using in place of going back to the Trump administration to keep immigrants from crossing the border. Now, the idea is here, what, what were you guys doing? Were you planning something to replace it? It was supposed to go away at the end of May. And they say, yes, we started working on this back in September. We talked about it yesterday, a six-point plan. Surging resources to the border, medical supplies, working with NGOs, greater efforts to crack down on human smuggling. Secretary Mayorkas described it today before the panel. We started our planning last September, and we are leading the execution of a whole-of-government strategy which stands on six pillars to prepare for and manage the rise in non-citizen encounters. We bring the six pillars to Leon Fresco now, partner at Holland and Knight, former Deputy Assistant Attorney General for the Office of Immigration Litigation at the Department of Justice's Civil Division. Leon, thank you for being here. I'm assuming that we're going to have quite a, a number of turns here in the legal department as we now wait for a judge uh, to, to make the final ruling that we've essentially been warned about. It's going to keep Title 42 in place. You get a sense that this administration is prepared for it to go away whenever that happens? Well, the thing is, at this point, it's going to go away. It's just a matter of time because there's not going to be a permanent COVID Title 42 policy. The Supreme Court at some point is going to have to credit the fact that the pandemic is over. And so there's not a pandemic-related reason to restrict entry into the United States. So then the question becomes, what takes its place? And this is the difficult situation in terms of facts versus rhetoric versus uh, law. And here, the problem is that what Title 42 does is it gives the administration the ability to blanket ban people from coming in. And when you eliminate that, you have to go through a process that, even though it's called expedited removal, still allows people to enter the United States, and if they can articulate a credible asylum claim, make that claim from the United States. And so the problem is, unless you can come up with some alternative that doesn't allow people to enter, the complaints of people who don't want people to enter are never going to be mollified. Well, talk to me about the plan the administration has. Does this look well thought out? Is it something they should have been working on long before September? Will it make a difference, Leon? So the problem with the plan that the administration has is that the plan that the administration has is a very well thought out plan to try to expedite the processing of people who enter the United States to seek asylum. And so what that means is they're trying to avoid a situation where you see pictures of kids lying in detention facilities in squalid cells with with mylar blankets and trying to figure out how you process these these people because there's backlogs in the processing so that's what their plan is aimed to address is how we get people through this system as quickly as possible so we don't have these scenes at the border that are these terrible humanitarians it it doesn't increase capacity enough to actually absorb all of these people does it leon Well, that's the problem is, one, we have no idea how many people are going to come. But number two, it doesn't address 
what you do to prevent people from entering the United States unless and until they actually win their asylum claim, which is the criticism that the Republicans have, which is they don't want anybody entering, period. But the problem with their criticism is that Title 42 is a public health-based reason to exclude. So what the uh, Biden administration is saying is if there's not actually a public health-based reason to exclude, we have to transition to the imperfect prior law and then try as best as we can to meet our responsibilities under that prior law. When that time comes, Leon, is it family detention or do we see kids separated again? How will the administration handle that to avoid the photos you're describing? Well, so that's the issue is that the administration is already saying they're not going to put families or unaccompanied kids in expedited removal, which means they won't be detained. The only thing that they're going to have is a maybe one or two or maybe three day window in a CBP facility where they're processed to make sure nobody there is a drug dealer or a terrorist or anything. But then they're going to be released until their court date. And this is the scenario that the Republicans wanted to avoid is they didn't want anybody being released. But that would require a statutory change or to just keep Title 42 forever, which is, of course, also illegal because there isn't a permanent pandemic. Oh, my God. Is this all going to end up in court again, Leon, before there's a final determination? Yes. Um, Both sides are going to sue. The people who want Title 42 eliminated faster and the people who want Title 42 kept forever. And really, in the end, I think the Supreme Court is going to say, look, Title 42 is a CDC decision. The CDC has lots of discretion in how they do this. And so because they have lots of discretion in how they do this, we, the courts, are not going to (laughs) supplant our judicial decisions for CDC Title 42 recommendations. I'm really glad you got in here. Leon just cooked this down in five minutes to make more sense than just about anybody I've heard yet. That's, I guess, why he's at Holland and Knight, why he was staff director for the Senate Judiciary Subcommittee on Immigration. Thank you, Leon. We'll reassemble the panel next. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. This is Bloomberg. You're listening to Bloomberg Sound On with Joe Matthew on Bloomberg Radio. The fastest hour in politics. Thanks for being with us as we join you from the mothership today. It's nice to be in New York. I even saw my first Mr. Softy truck as I emerged from the train station. I said, yes, that means summer is near. You know, first it's the cherry blossoms in D.C. We don't get the Mr. Softy. I remember having a fantasy as a kid, someday buying a Mr. Softy truck. That would be my career. And I'm still aiming for it. As we reassemble the panel here, Jeannie Shanzano is with us, Democratic analyst and, of course, Bloomberg Politics contributor and joined today by Doug High. With us for the hour, Republican strategist, former deputy chief of staff to Eric Cantor and former director of communications at the RNC. So what recording? That's nothing. What do I see here? Nobody's concerned about this. The line to Bloomberg from a Republican member today Kevin McCarthy had his first face-to-face with the rank and file since the recording surfaced. 
of him criticizing some colleagues, considering telling Donald Trump to resign. And even more where that came from. There is more tape, you know. I guess this is going to trickle out every day here or something. CNN got it from the New York Times. This, again, is the Alex Burns and J-Mart story. They've put a book together. And, uh, God, this thing doesn't even come out for, like, another month, um, a couple weeks at least. It's already number one. So let's get to the tape here. I want to hear from Doug on this. We'll get to the latest recording from Kevin McCarthy as he's talking with Steve Scalise, right? This is a member, uh, a leadership call talking about the membership and naming names, including Matt Gates. They're not happy with, you know, post-January 6th, some of the rhetoric that was coming out on Twitter. And McCarthy has had it. We even had to bleep the tape so we could play it for you here on Bloomberg Radio. Here he is. What did Gates say? I, yeah, Gates said, Gates brought up Liz specifically. I just saw that on Twitter. Someone just sent it. Um, Gonzalez just sent it to me, so I'm calling Gates. I'm explaining to him. I don't know how much to say, but I'm going to have some other people call him too. But the nature of what, if I'm getting briefing, I'm going to get another one from the FBI tomorrow. Uh, this is serious to cut this out. Yeah, that's, that, that's, that's, I mean, it's potentially illegal what he's doing. Well, he's putting people in jeopardy. And he, he doesn't need to be doing this. He, we, we saw what people would do in the Capitol. Um, you know, and these people came prepared. It's, with everything else. A very concerned Kevin McCarthy. The New York Times reporting, this is January 10th, by the way, this call urging other party leaders to monitor the public statements of certain lawmakers, including, yes, Matt Gates of Florida, also Mo Brooks of Alabama. Gates actually replied. He seems to be the one guy who's kind of upset about all this. He replied on Twitter after hearing the tape, called McCarthy and Scalise, the number two House GOP leader, weak men, not leaders. And apparently demanded an apology in the caucus luncheon today. Matt Gates. Everyone else, though, pretty good with it. Pretty good with it. As our friend Emily Wilkins writes, Bloomberg government, House Republicans rallied around Kevin McCarthy in their first in-person meeting. You get a little bit of taste of this, uh, as a matter of fact. Uh, Representative Salazar, Republican from Florida, Maria Salazar, emerging from the lunch here, talking with a reporter out on the street about her take on the tape. Here she is. So did you listen to the McCarthy audio that was released? Sure I did. And what was your response as an American? My response that was that, that it was edited. You see, I know the art of editing. So I don't, I don't, I'm that? not sure. I'm not sure in what context. But what I'm saying to you is that it's not a matter of trying to find out what happened or what he said. It's the whole story. Right. Don't you guys see it, what we, you guys are doing? We asked the Dems the same question. You know, it's like the history will judge the news organizations a hundred years from now and we'll say we're not doing our job. Well, at least that won't be here a hundred years from now. And, you know, I'll talk to you about the art of editing. It is an art when it's done, right? Doug High, uh, pull me in off the ledge here. Is this what you expected, that Kevin McCarthy walks back into that Republican caucus meeting and gets a standing ovation? Doug, that's what happened today. Is this already over? You know, perhaps not a standing ovation, I would have predicted, but that this wouldn't be uh, a massive deal within the conference itself is not surprising at all. And I'd say a couple reasons for that. One, Republicans want to be focused on the midterms and talking about those issues that are most resonating with voters on midterms. Inflation, as we were talking about earlier, rising crime, for instance, anything that is a distraction from that, they don't want to talk about. And they'll find whatever way they will and talk about it 100 years from today because they don't want to talk about that is one reason. The other is, let's face it, 
what members have kind of come up when when um, in these conversations. It's been members like Matt Gates yep. and Marjorie Taylor Greene. Mm-hmm. That is terra firma for House Republican leadership to be critical of. It's not like he was making these comments about a Patrick McHenry or a Gus Bilirakis or somebody like that. It's a very different conversation. He was making comments about Donald Trump the other day, though. Apparently Trump was fine with it. At least he is for now. Doug, were you offended by anything that you heard? No, I agreed with everything that he said. I, you know, I would like to see more consistency there, obviously. But this is the political reality of where Republicans not only find themselves, but have put themselves. You know, as we know, whether it's an endorsement or anything else, Republicans feel the need to be uh, beholden to Trump. And certainly if you want to be the next Speaker of the House, assuming Republicans take it over, yeah. having Donald Trump on your side instead of against you is the fastest way to get there. Well, of course, there was really, I don't think there was any editing in that tape, uh, Jeannie. I mean, maybe they, they had to take a portion of it, obviously, but nothing was cut up there. And he didn't deny any of those comments. So I thought the Salazar take was interesting. But my gosh, this is Capitol Hill. There's no there, there are no young guns out there who want to take out Kevin McCarthy and run for speaker, Jeannie. And and that's a great point. No, who would want to be speaker at this point? You know, he, there is nobody in waiting for this job, really, at this point. Well, that's pathetic. And uh, yeah, it, it is. And, and, you know, Salazar's comments echoed what Marjorie Taylor Greene said. She's talking about the media are trying to divide us. So they have put this in the context of this, you know, Trumpian fake news media. Let's face it, McCarthy has raised more money, I think, now than any other GOP leader for his members for re-election. He is the only one who is in the offing to be speaker. He will probably be elected speaker if they take the House. My question is, is he going to be a weakened speaker? Mm. And I would also say that, you know, what they need to be concerned about, they need to be concerned about if people in the conservative media turn on him and turn on him like Tucker Carlson, who's described him as liberal and Elise Stefanik. That's when members will get pushback from Republican constituents, and then you may see pushback. Otherwise, he's going to skate into that position and have a tough time getting anything done. Is that crack in the party a problem for Kevin McCarthy, Doug? Uh, to, To Jeannie's point, you saw Tucker Carlson coming out for blood. If you go on Twitter, if you look at Uh, conservatives, not just Republicans, but conservatives who are supporting Donald Trump. They're pretty angry at some of the stuff Kevin McCarthy said. Sure. But ultimately, if Donald Trump is behind him, uh, what conservative uh, columnist or commentator or really member of Congress outside of the four or five usual suspect loudmouths are really going to go against Kevin in that vote? They're not going to. He'll win the vote within the conference. He'll be, you know, again, if, if, if it's a big majority and, and Trump backs him, he'll win that vote easily in the conference and then we'll take it to the floor where he'll lose some votes, no doubt about it, but ultimately should emerge victorious. Does and Donald Trump, Trump need to weigh in them, on this? He hasn't said a peep outside of this meeting he supposedly had with McCarthy. Donald Trump never has to weigh in on anything, but he always <laughs> weighs in on things. So we'll have to just see what he says. Doug, we haven't had a chance to talk to you in a bit, uh, certainly since the Elon Musk uh, story with Twitter. Does does Donald Trump go back on Twitter? That would be one way to start getting real loud. He says he's not going to, but no one believes him. Well, clearly he knows that that would be the best place for him, the most effective place for him. His visibility has dropped precipitously since he was kicked off Twitter. The challenge that we just don't know about is, is there anything with his media platform, Truth, uh, Truth Social, that would either delay or prevent him from doing so. And if he has fiduciary or contractual obligations there, that may hold things back.
You're on Truth Social, Jeannie. What do you think? How's that working out for you? I'm very active, Joe. Very active on Truth Social. No, I'm not. But you well, know, Trump I, isn't either. That's the <laughs> irony. Is yeah. he's done. He's he's truthed only and, once. That's right. I didn't even set it up, and I'm doing just about as much as he is. <laughs> but true. you know, that would be a gift to Democrats. They are praying that Elon Musk is able to convince Donald Trump, as Doug mentioned, if he doesn't have an obligation to stay on Truth, you know, exclusively. Yeah, right, right. They are praying for him to get back on. The more he is out there the better for Democrats. That's how they feel in a very tough year. They'd like more of him, not less. The Air Force One story was pretty remarkable today. Speaking of Donald Trump, uh, Doug, they, they're losing you know hundreds of millions of dollars because of this Air Force One contract that was part of his stump speech. And he would brag about how he got them you know, to this ridiculously low number at Boeing uh, that now the, the new Boeing CEO says should never have happened. These kind of stories don't resonate for Donald Trump, though, the way they might for, for say, a Joe Biden. Imagine if Joe no, Biden no, overran the Air Force One contract by $700 million. Look, you know, but part of this is to be, you know, somewhat skeptical or even cynical about it. This is what has been built in for Donald Trump and has been a real Teflon shield for him. Hmm. We expect Donald Trump to make shady deals. And what do you know? <laughs> he made a shady deal. Wow. That's a heck of a way to get reelected, Doug. Can you can you put that on a bumper sticker, Jeannie? You know, Donald Trump probably could. He did say he could kill people. What was That's it on right. Fifth Avenue? So, you know, he could put that on there as well. <laughs> Take it to the printer. Great conversation, Doug. Thanks for being here. Uh, don't be a stranger. Anytime. Doug, hi. Always a pleasure, of course, to spend time with our friend Jeannie Chanzano, a member of the family. And I feel so close to Jeannie being in New York right now. We'll do it again tomorrow on The Fastest Hour in Politics. I'm Joe Matthew. This is Bloomberg. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at CutterEconomicForum.com.